Well, Cade Mila Fall to everybody. August Bonactina Kaska are Jamie's Anandum, and you are so welcome. Go Chuck Solace on Bolyaklia on Oak and of course on Jungjag and Navin Dublin and in Dog. If you're part of our church family, it's great to see you on this Easter Sunday. If you're a new person, just come in the door. Man, we're so glad that you are here. And of course, if you are an invitee of the baptisees, those getting baptized with their friends or family, we're so glad that you are here also. Today, I want to bring you a message to kind of bring out the meaning of why we as Christ followers, as Christians around the world, celebrate Easter. But heads up before I do, that next Sunday we're starting a brand new series all about relationships. All of us are in relationships, coming out of relationships. A huge part of our lives are shaped by relationships in work, in school, with friends, romantic relationships, every area, school, mates, teams, everything. So what we're trying to do next week is discover and find out and get better at how do we do relationships better. So a brand new series that we were calling Reassembly Required, all of the building blocks of building effective and healthy relationships. So hopefully you guys can join us next Sunday for part one. As I kick off this message there, I was reminded of a few days ago a trip I was on. I got to go and visit the great nation of Germany. And the reason why I was there was I was there to help train up people like me, people whose job, career, vocation life is leading churches. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this in Europe, but the most popular career choice by no means or any means is, of course, I want to be a pastor. I want to lead a church. I want to help people find God. In fact, to this day, when I meet some of my family and I remind them of that, what I do, they go, really? I'm like, come on, it was 20 years to still can't believe it. But what struck me as interesting, when I was in Germany last week, was there was hundreds of these leaders from various towns and cities and regions, provinces, counties, all over uh, the nation. And there was such enthusiasm and such excitement and such anticipation in the hearts and minds, on the tongue of all those people. Uh, and really what it centered around was this idea that they sensed for their nation, as we sense for our nation in Ireland, that God's best days for his people and for their land were in front of them and not behind them. And it really got me thinking about how, there, you know, as I travel and meet people, there are leaders everywhere in the world, including our world, Ireland, that are excited about what God is doing in their countries. I thought, that's a kind of a bizarre thing. In fact, Easter Sunday, as some of you are aware, is the most significant day on the calendar for Christians worldwide. There is no religious event in the world that even comes close to Easter. So perhaps... As you're sitting there, maybe you're new, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you've never been to a, a church like this before. The global strength of Easter, this, this, this sense of what God was doing, it maybe falls short of your admiration, that's fair enough, but perhaps it beckons your consideration. You may not be joking, joking but wow, people are excited about what God is doing, people are excited about Easter, but the fact that Easter is, the fact that it still survives, and the fact that it is the most celebrated event in the world, uh, right now, uh, should beckon, should call for, should challenge, should at least make you somewhat curious. And then add in the fact that a lot of us like me weren't raised in churches like this. Uh, people like me were probably raised more in churches like you came from. And yet something about not just the, the event of Easter, but the message of Easter, the purpose of Easter, so profoundly changed my life, 
so profoundly changed so many of the lives of people in Israel. But if God has changed your life by resurrecting Jesus, right now we have got a massive round of applause. Come on, let's just celebrate for a second what God has done in our lives. And you see, so the fact that not only is the event a big deal of the work and still survives despite all the challenges against faith in modern culture, but also the fact that it, it, it's very, it's a very personal, deeply real, significant part of those people who would say they have faith. So all I'm asking you today is, is just give me your consideration. Maybe not your admiration, but at least give God your consideration. And of course, and I know exactly what you're thinking. People who come to our church in general, people who often meet me and hear what I do, one of the first questions that is in their mind that may not always be on their tongue, if you're trying to be polite, is why do you still believe in Jesus? I mean, who believes in Jesus? Like, isn't Jesus to be relegated in the same categories as Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and all those other people? Like, like how do you read how do you real living, intelligent, adults, mostly sane, most of the time mature human beings? How do people like us still have a legitimate faith in Jesus? And again, you may not always say this, but oftentimes if you're thinking this. Oh, it must be because they've inherited this faith. I mean, it was from their parents, it was given to them, they don't have a choice, they're raised up in it. And if, and if that isn't the case, well, then they were indoctrinated. Like they were, they were someone knocked on their door and someone made a mistake and inviting people like us in for coffee. Before you know it, you're part of the church. Or, you know what, you're just down right and sick. Like, those are the categories you tend to put people in, at least those categories I put people in. Whenever I came across people with real faith, either you've inherited this, either you've been adopted this, or you're just downright insane. And one of the reasons why I love scripture is because scripture is not afraid to tell us the truth. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 11, when Jesus, when, when, when the people were told Jesus had been risen from the dead, it says in verse 11, but they did not believe them or, or, or what they were saying because their words seemed like nonsense. And for a lot of people, faith in God, Jesus, resurrection, dying on the cross, Easter, it seems like a lot of nonsense. And again, it, it, this leads to kind of the, the common the common worldview or the common or the common you know misinformation I might call it about Jesus' resurrection. Most people believe that the story of Jesus' resurrection came about as an organic myth. Like there was a dude, he was a good guy taught some good and helpful things, inspired some people, probably died a normal death, inconspicuously, and just, you know, his followers mourned him, submit the story, romanticized it, stretched the truth a little bit, and over time, a story gathers moss, you know, and all of a sudden, three or four hundred years later, Jesus, like the Son of God, and some silly people who needed a spiritual crutch bought into that, and then those who were opportunistic and malevolent at heart, so the opportunity to manipulate people, so they leveraged that, create a system to use faith to make money, and so on, and so on. And most people, and again, hands up right here, I mean, may fame, like, most people believe that that's how the Christian story began. But what I, want to, what I want you to see today, as we sit here today, as we watch together today, is that the Christian story didn't begin with organic myth. The, the Christian story began with an event, not a principle, not a theory, not a religious belief, not a, not a teaching, not even a book, not even the Bible. The Christian faith began with an event. And ultimately speaking, when it comes to the question, why do people like us still believe in Jesus? The answer is, we believe in Jesus because we believe in what 
social media in the first century said about genes. You think, well, social media didn't exist in the first century. Well, not a digital form, but, but there are documents that were written down, that were captured, that tell the stories. These documents were written by eyewitnesses, people like Matthew, like Peter, like John, like Paul, who experienced someone, experienced someone real, brought a real lasting change into their lives because of what they've written and because what's been written is scientifically, uh, hist you know, historically verifiable, it's worth our consideration. For example, when it comes to the idea that Christianity is, is, is the result of the formation of a myth, let's just test that hypothesis for a moment. We're told that from the experts, the mythologists, maybe mythbusters, that for a myth to form, it must take place 50 to 100 years after the event needed to happen. Of course, the answer for why that is quite simple, because if you want to tell a lie about a real event, everyone that was alive when the event happens, had happened has to be dead. Otherwise, when you make up a lie and a fig, someone will say, well, I was there, that's nonsense. It's like if someone were to say, oh, in 2023, England won the Six Nations. <laughs> no, they didn't quite, because we all saw it. But in a hundred years, if there was no digital media, no way to capture it, if, if, if word of mouth was the primary way information was passed and shared, well then yeah, someone could begin to stir the pot and make up a lie that maybe England won the Six Nations in 2023. But we all know Ireland won. And there's lots of reasons for that, including the fact that God loves Ireland. But that's a conversation for another day. The point is, for a myth to be able to take root in culture, the, the, the distance between the event and the myth being told has to be around 100 years. Now, what's so interesting is when you look at uh, New Testament history, not just from a biblical point of view, but even from just a general historical point of view, the spread of the message of Christ happened so rapidly, so powerfully, happened so personally in the lives of so many people that a scholar said the proven timeline illustrates the legitimacy of the witnesses and their account. Much of the New Testament, we're told, is simply a collection of documents that account that are accounts of individuals and their eyewitnessing or experiences and the implication of what they witnessed in their message. And this message changed them then. This message has been changing people ever since. And this message continues to change people today. So the point where all over the world right now, people in places are gathered not to celebrate Easter, but to celebrate what Easter points to, and that is a resurrected Jesus. The, the, the church and Christianity and the Christian message doesn't begin with the formation of myth, but it begins with the event, and that event is the resurrection. Everything hinges on the resurrection. I'm going to say something controversial right now, but please understand my heart. Easter is more important than Christmas. Like, like Christmas really matters, because if God didn't come, if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, to be the savior of the world, well then there would be no story to tell. But if Jesus simply came and died, then he's just like every other religious leader that ever lived and ever founded a religion. What makes Jesus different? Well, there's lots of things that makes Jesus different. For example, he didn't found religion, never wrote a book, uh, didn't start a college, uh, didn't draw attention to, 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 to a way of life. He said, I am the life, which was fine when it's alive. That was really annoying and really awful when he was dead. Uh, what separates Jesus, the Christian message, is that he was the one who was born, who lived, but died and lived again. And in his living again, he made the boldest, most crazy, 
most audacious claim. It was as crazy and as audacious 2,000 years ago as it is as shocking as it is today, that he is the way to the Father and he is life itself. Now, again, if you're skeptical or curious, it's new to you, yeah, you're pushing back and all, well, I don't want to believe that. That's okay, because here's the bottom line. Christ, Christmas can come and go, like you said about Christmas, but if the resurrection did not happen, it's game over for the church. If Jesus did not raise the dead, what are we doing? There's no power in this. There's no point to this. We're just another group of people trying to do religious things. But at the same time, if Jesus is who he said he is, and if he did what he claimed to have done, and if he is in fact alive and present in this place right now, well, rather than being game over, it's game on. It changes everything. The event that birthed the message of the gospel, the event that birthed the movement, that we are now in and part of is the resurrection. Now, as we jump into today's text, and we're going to be looking at John's Gospel and chapter 20 in just a few moments. Let me give some context. Some of you know this, but let me just paint a picture to understand where we find, where we pick up the story. Jesus, of course, on Good Friday, had been betrayed by his good friend Judas and was led before a, a kind of a, a joke trial where he's falsely accused, no evidence, it's a terrible thing. And eventually he was handed over to the Romans. And then he was crucified. He was killed. He's dead. He wasn't kind of dead. He wasn't half dead. He wasn't asleep. He was dead dead. He was so much dead that they buried him. After three days, we're told that uh, some of Jesus' followers wanting to do right by him, wanting to honor him in their burial, came to his tomb uh, to honor him. Now, what's so interesting is, when you, when you read the gospel account, by all means, feel free to do that in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, or John's gospel. What you find is, is when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't like all his followers like, yay, come on, Jesus, you're the best, you're going to win, it's okay, don't cry, people. He said he's going to rise again. No, no, what we're told is, is even though Jesus tried to warn his disciples that he had to die to pay the price for the brokenness of humanity, that he would rise again. And in his resurrection, he would bring life, he would bring love, and he would bring liberation to those who are spiritually and emotionally and physically captive. What's so interesting is, that's why I love the Bible, because it tells the truth, is that on Good Friday, all of Jesus' closest and best friends clicked unfollow. All of Jesus' followers unfollowed him. It wasn't like on the morning of Jesus' resurrection, his disciples were out to the tomb going, 10, 9, 8, here he is, give it up to the world. There's nobody there. Because even Jesus' closest followers did not believe that when Jesus died, he would rise again. Again, think about it. I've already said it. It's a huge inconvenience uh, to, to a faith if, if the leader of the faith, rather than pointing to an ideology or pointing to a way of life or pointing to mantras or pointing to some other figure, if the leader of, of a religion points to themselves and makes everything about them like Jesus did and then they die, well... I mean, think about it. Jesus' claims about himself undermined his message and undermined his movement. Why? Because when he died, the message and the movement died with him. No one was out to the tomb on Easter morning waiting for it to happen. As far as they were concerned, they were heartbroken, they were stricken, they were lost because it was over. Hope was dead because he was dead. And we pick up in verse 20, verse 1, and it was dark. Early in the first day of the week, 
while it was still dark, one of Jesus' followers named Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and to her surprise, we're told, she saw the stone on the entrance of the tomb have been moved away. So again, some context. In first century culture, people were buried in graves like they are now. In this part of the world, which is very rocky, very rugged, sorry, uh, with lots of rocks and very uh, arid, people were buried usually in caves that already existed. And what they would do is they would put the body in, they'd put a huge rock over it to seal it, to kind of cover it, because it wouldn't take long in those kind of temperatures for a body to decompose. Once the body decomposed, they'd wait for a few weeks, take the bones out, and then bury them somewhere more appropriate. So Mary Magdalene, we're told, is on the way to the grave after three days because the Jewish Sabbath day of rest happened in between. And when she gets there, she's surprised because the stone is rolled away. The st stone was not supposed to go away. It's like, for example, if you buried someone you love and you were to visit three days later and, and the grave was open, you're thinking, that's not supposed to be the case. Like, what's going on here? And the first thing that would go to your mind isn't, oh, a loved relative, loved one is alive. The first thing is like, who's stuck into my grandfather's grave? I mean, who stole their body? I mean, what mess or what vandal? Like, what, has someone moved him? Oh, it's funny, when you read the accounts of the resurrection, those are the kind of questions they were asking. They weren't going, I knew it. I knew it, I knew it. He said he would rise again. They were asking questions like, did you take him? Where has he gone? Did someone move him? Has his body being stolen. No one was gone. I knew he'd rise again. People had unfollowed Jesus. And of course, I think there's a, a great uh, angle on this as well, because in one of the other Gospels, we're told that one of the reasons why Mary Magdalene was going to the tomb was because when they were burying Jesus, they were in a rush to bury him quickly because they had to bury him according to their, to their traditions before the Jewish Sabbath began. And because we're told it was, it was a bunch of men that buried him, women know that whenever men do something in a hurry, they don't do it right. Right, guys? So we're told that Mary Magdalene was coming along to do things right and to finish a job that men had done half-baked. What, what, what is interesting is for sure, Mary Magdalene was not going to the grave to greet a risen Savior. But she was going to finish the process of a poorly embalmed body. Verse 2, we're told, so what did she do? So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, this other disciple you're going to see reference is actually John. So John is in the story. The reason why he knows this happened is because he was there. But he writes almost third person. So he came to Simon Peter, the other disciple to John, the one Jesus loved, to get in there, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Again, she isn't saying, oh my gosh, he's risen. He's saying someone has taken Jesus' body. Why? Because she expected to find a body. This is the key. She expected when she went to the tomb to find a buried Jesus. Nobody expected nobody. Nobody expected to get to the tomb and expect nobody. In fact, when Peter went and John went they went there to find the body of a buried martyr, not to be in the place where the miracle of a risen Messiah took place. Even though they're literally looking at the evidence in front of them, their brain can't compute, even though they were told, even though they're followers, even though they're close to Jesus, they could not compute the fact that Jesus' body wasn't there. So the rationale was her body was taken. There's something about human beings that we always just, it's so funny I read this and I go, that was 2,000 years ago, and we're still the same. 
Whenever something happens in life, we always assume the worst, right? Like our brain goes to the worst case scenario. It's like, oh my gosh, it must mean this. And it's like, no, no, probably this. No, no, but it has to be this. And it's just human nature to always expect the worst. But maybe sometimes in our greatest fears, in our greatest uncertainties, maybe in the place of our greatest doubt, our greatest loss, maybe that's the place of God's greatest miracles. Skip down to verse 11, and we're told there's a whole bunch of things happen where Peter and John can run into the tomb, they look into the tomb, they see Jesus' burial garments ironically folded. So there you go, guys, if you ever want to solve a theological question. God folds his clothes, so you've got excuse. There you are. You're welcome to all women. And, uh, and so to find his uh, burial clothes folded, and they still cannot compute and logically, cognitively grasp that they are literally in the greatest miracle to ever have happened in human history. And as they're posting all this in verse 11, we're told, Now Mary stood up to the tomb crying. Why? Because she thinks at this point, someone has taken the body of her leader. As she wept, we're told, she bent over to look into the tomb. But when she looked at in verse 12, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One, on, one at the head and the other at the foot. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where to put him. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, come on. We can all enter into the story. And we can all identify with Mary's grief, with her loss, with the desperation of not only losing him once, watching him die on a cross, a, a humiliating, horrible, painful, suffering death, with the pain of losing him twice. Because now, in her perspective, she's now lost his body. What is kind of funny, though, when I read this text is, you know, for years, theologians have debated when it comes to angels. Like, are angels guys? Are they gals? Are they dudes? Are they dudettes? Like, like you know, what is, what is, what is the, the, the makeup of an angel? And I think in this text, it kind of gives us the answer, kind of resolves centuries of theological debate. Because when they ask, woman, why are you crying? It's probably because, well, the answer is they're men. Because only men could be insensitive in that moment and ask that kind of question when someone like Mary is suffering. What's so interesting is that we're told that out of nowhere, Jesus, the resurrected, and obviously he's resurrected, so he's in what we call technical terms in glory, in his most glorious form. So when he walks up to her, she doesn't recognize him. But what's really crucial, I think, is that even though she doesn't recognize him, even though she doesn't appreciate who he is, even though she hasn't accepted who's talking to her, Jesus still interacts with her in a dialogue. There's something really important with this, that oftentimes what we don't see, we can't understand, we can't fathom, but we can't believe. We've lost hope and we, we've lost heart. Still Jesus comes to us in our tears, in our grief, in our pain, and in our weeping. And even sometimes when we push him away, and even though sometimes we may reject him, still he lovingly engages us in a dialogue in a conversation. He tries to speak to not just the issues of life, but the issues of our heart. In verse 15, he says, as Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, which probably was hilarious verse in the whole Bible. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. 
Again, you can hear the heart of a mother. Like, if you move this in, if you know where he is, then you better tell me. Because I want to get him, and I'm going to put him back. But it's hilarious that Mary's having a conversation with the resurrected. The thing she's looking for is right in front of her. But she thinks he's the gardener. I don't know what he was wearing. Maybe it was the fact that he was holding a, a trowel or a shovel. I don't know what to say. But for whatever reason, she just assumed this guy was the gardener. But again, what's so interesting is here is Jesus speaking to Mary. Disciples are all trying to process. All this is happening at the same time. And yet no one again to this point is saying, maybe he's risen. Like, maybe what he said would happen actually happened. No. Despite the fact that Jesus is talking to her still, nobody expected Jesus to be alive. Nobody actually expected a resurrection. Nobody was looking for a risen Savior. They were looking for a lost body. Again, just so you know, this is not how you develop a myth. Like, if you're trying to create a myth, you don't tell the truth, number one, that's inconvenient. But number two, you don't start off by the, the heroes, the heroines of the story are so stupid that they can't even recognize the very thing they're looking for is standing in front of If you're going to start a myth, usually the, the key figure, the prophet, the teacher, the leader, Whoever they, whoever they are, they're the hero, right? They're the one who, who leads the way and shows us how to be. Their lives are perfect. They're so close to God. They get everything right and they inspire us with their greatness. You don't start a myth by saying, oh, and by the way, we were all like Egypt in the garden talking to Jesus and not even realizing it was him. None of the authors write themselves in as heroes. None of the authors paint themselves in a positive, none of the authors make themselves look good, which doesn't make any sense unless that's what happens, unless that's the truth, unless this is the account of how they were surprised as much as anyone that Jesus actually is who he says he is, and Jesus had done the thing that he had said he would do. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabona, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. What a beautiful moment. Mary's in conversation with her. Jesus doesn't recognize him. He's standing beside her. They're in close proximity. She doesn't recognize him. But the minute Jesus says her name, something clicks. Something connects. Something makes sense. Something becomes real. Something happens in her where all of a sudden she's like, that's Jesus. There's something about Jesus' voice especially when he calls out to each individual. When Jesus calls your name, maybe you're like me and you're like, man, I don't believe this. I'm not sure. I'm skeptical. I'm pushing back. I don't know if I can embrace this. I mean, I'm just so confused. Like, there's all these questions, all these doubts and in our difficulties and our sufferings and our grievings and our losings and our pains and our fallings down and all these things that you go through life. There's something about when Jesus says your name, when he calls your name, like it for me over 20 years ago, I'll never forget for as long as I live, sitting in this tiny little room of a hostel in Heidelberg, Germany, not knowing how to do anything right, just frustrated, broken, lost, 
prayed a half-hearted prayer to God. I didn't even believe him. Never expected anything to happen. And all of a sudden, I heard the same voice Mary heard. Except he didn't call me Mary. That would be awkward. He said, Jamie. And it was in that moment I knew, man, like this changes everything. Because it is God I didn't even believe existed without speaking to me. Either I've gone insane, or I've been indoctrinated, or I didn't hear it. So, you know, like I, I just couldn't make sense of what's happening other than maybe Jesus lives. You see, it's so interesting as well that Jesus would, appear, would, would, choo would choose to appear to Mary first. Because we know that in, in, in first century culture, a woman's voice carried no weight. A woman had no influence. A woman couldn't speak in court. She couldn't vote. She couldn't lead. And again, terrible, terrible realities of that time. So if you're trying to start a myth, if you're trying to get a story off the ground, if you're trying to peddle for prophets some new religion, you don't start off by saying the hero told a woman the most important piece of news and she was the beginning of the greatest movement of the world. That's not how you start a movement. It's just complete folly to think that you could start such a movement the testimony of a woman. It makes no sense unless that's how it happens. Unless, even though culture didn't see the value of women and their voice and their influence, God still does. Unless, even though it, it seemed to be even more impossible to get this message out, if everyone goes, well, who was the first one that saw him? And they go, a woman. Oh, I can't believe it. Unless, in the impossibility of all the cultural bars and pushbacks, despite the fact that for these people that was an issue, God chose the first messenger of the good news to be a woman. What other reason could there possibly be for her to be in here unless that is what happened? And what was Mary's message? What was her testimony, so to speak? What was, what was the revelation of realization that rocked her world, rocking the world for 2,000 years ever since? It wasn't that she'd figure out some great philosophical, theological mystery. It wasn't that her life was in perfect order and everything was good and easy. It wasn't that all things were in place. It was simply this. Jesus who lived and died again lives again. And I have seen the Lord. When we come to that realization, when we hear him through space and time, through pain and brokenness and heartache and loss and confusion and all of these things caught out our name. That changes things. See, my friends, as I begin to close today, Jesus being alive changed everything for her. And Jesus being alive can change everything for, for, for us also. The, the Christian message didn't originate through organic meat. None of this makes any historic sense. Rather, the first followers of Jesus followed Jesus, not because of something they were taught, because of someone they saw. Fast forward to lot 2,000 years later, why do we, why are so many people still following Jesus? Is it because we're indoctrinated, because we inherited the faith, because we're insane? No, it's because we too were told something, taught something, experienced something. There was a moment in time in every person's life, you can hear my voice right now in front of they heard the voice of God lovingly, graciously, powerfully, hopefully, 
call their name. This moment, this encounter, if you want to call it, with Jesus changed Mary's life forever and has changed the world and continues to change the world. It's why Jesus would say in John 11, this is him telling his disciples before the fight. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asked this question, do you believe this? See, the whole point of Easter follows down to that one question. I am alive, says Jesus. Do you believe this? Even if you don't right now, maybe you want to. Because maybe like Mary Magdalene, you're going through difficulty. You're in a dark place. You're in a difficult place. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you're beaten up by life. Maybe you're hard-pressed. Maybe the pressure is what's going on in your family. Maybe some of the relationship things want to start talking about next year. Maybe they're just so difficult right now. What we see in this text is because even in the darkest hours of our lives, even in the face of great difficulty and great desperation, we can have hope and confidence because Jesus lives and Jesus loves us and Jesus liberates us. And the first followers weren't indoctrinated into blindly adhering to a religious belief system built loosely on the premature martyrdom of a religious revolution. Rather, they were transformed by what they saw and who they experienced. Risen Jesus, Lord and Savior. My friends, if Jesus has truly risen, then everything about everything changes. And everything about everything can change for us also. Easter, the event that is, and the resurrection are not just things that we can explain, not just things to be explained, but it's something to be experienced. Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he lives again because he loves you. And in his eyes, you're worth it. You may think, man, I'm a lovable. I don't even love myself. How could God, listen to me, Good Friday reminds us that by dying on the cross, Jesus loves you. But Easter Sunday shows us that through the power of his resurrection, that love can change you. It is real. It is alive. It gives us hope. It gives us confidence. It gives us the possibility of dreaming a future, no matter where we are, what we've done, where we've come from. Jesus calls up our name. And he invites us to himself. He says, I am the way to life. Do you believe this? The moment we're going to go to a song called Never Known love like this. I love the bridge where it says, you don't leave me where you found me. You pull me out of the mess. You won't leave me broken hearted. You never break your promises. You keep giving me second chances far above what I deserve. You keep telling me I'm worth it. I love. I have to learn. As we get ready to respond today, let me encourage you. Let's not just be at the event that is Easter. Let's experience an encounter at Easter. Because I believe Jesus is in this place today. For every heart that's open to him, to every heart that responds to his voice, I believe there's hope and there's help in Jesus today. Would you stand with me? Come on, let's stand. And just for a few seconds, nothing weird or awkward is going to happen. No one's going to 
we'll flatten all the raptors, we'll look, no one's going to sneak up in their chair. I just, I just I want to pray for you because I believe that God is in this room today. And when God is present, anything is possible. And so if you are, if you mind, just bow your head for me and close your eyes again. This is just so we can remove the distraction in the room. Just for a few seconds, come on. I want to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for that love that was poured out the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. That even though the event of the crucifixion happened 2,000 years ago, the reality lives on today that every one of us, no matter where we're from, no matter what we've done, no matter how much we screwed up in the past, or how broken, how lost, how hurting we are, the cross shows us that you love us. And you paid the price for us because we're worth it. But I'm also so thankful. Today as we celebrate, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that we aren't just a bunch of religious fanatics doing religious things, making up in our own mind religious nonsense. But there is power in this place because Jesus, you are here. And I've asked for all my friends right now, whether those who know you and love you and serve you, or those who are curious, or those who are, who are just here for the first time, I just pray that as your presence, as your love, penetrates their heart, would you call out their name? And Holy Spirit, as you speak the name of each person, Lord, help us that our hearts will be open, that we can respond to this love, that we too would have seen the Lord, that you would bring us hope, peace, love, life, and liberty, because God, we've never seen and never done a love like this. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy may just sing today, guys.